Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there. It's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1999. I can only show you the podcast, but you have to download it. The film, The Matrix. everyone and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i'm paul Shear. and amy does not have covid do not worry about it it's just a cold <laughs> it is just she a is cold fine it makes me sound like a robot though which i think is appropriate <laughs> well this is the podcast where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time and when we do we're going to send them into outer space Today's episode is about The Matrix, a film that we have talked about a ton on this show. And we are doing this today because I'm sure, like many people out there, you're excited about The New Matrix. It just opened this week. You may want to go back, revisit, watch again, whatever you want to do. We want to be there for you to have this conversation about The Matrix. As a matter of fact, Amy and I are going to do a live Twitch stream about the new Matrix. Stay tuned for that. Follow us on social media. We'll get into that. But today is the first Matrix. I'm so excited to talk about it with you, Amy. I am ready to take this pill and go with you into the void. I mean, I would like to think that like when we get our perfect list of 100 films, that when the people of 2199 emerge from their pods, they'll be able to like download awesome movies that they can like make to feel human again, man. I mean, I feel like the Nebuchadnezzar could use like some good stuff to watch. They're just sitting around eating cream of wheat. You know, I talk about this a lot. This is, uh, I think, the movie that's going to be playing on the big screens at the raves in Zion, you know? Like, hey, we love it. We're dancing. We're watching The Matrix. It's going to be great. Uh, But Amy, before we get into The Matrix, we have to just address what happened last week, which was our Love Actually episode, an episode that was the longest episode we've ever done of this podcast. Which is kind of embarrassing. (laughs) I mean, we did Citizen (laughs) Kane. It didn't need to be as dissected as Love Actually. You know it, I know it. We get it. It's a sled, Rosebud. We saw it. 
here. There are so many plot lines. If Citizen Kane had eight different stories, then we would have spent three hours on it. One story, one man, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But wow, the reaction to Love Actually was kind of fascinating. I think in a way it was to some people like, thank you, you are speaking the truth. I've always been my lone friend who hates this movie. And then there are other people like, how dare you? It's just a rom-com. You shouldn't nitpick it. Uh, and then there are other people who are like, I I hate that you did this, but I agree with you, but I'm still going to watch it. And that's kind of the camp that I'm in, which is like, I'm still going to watch Love Actually if it comes on the TV. But I also feel like Neo... And I have seen, I have seen the, I have seen the Matrix right now. When I watch Love Actually, <laughs> it's like the end scene in the Matrix where I am seeing all the code. I, I got the code. I'm still in the Matrix, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay there. I mean, I want you to stay there because I got accused of bullying you into not liking Love Actually. But what? I think the fact that, yeah, but I think the fact that you that you continue to cry at Love Actually is just adorable. I think that's wonderful. I want you to be the person who continues to cry at Love Actually. When you're old, I want to like play Love Actually on a screen outside your retirement home window so that you can cry there. Why Does that am sound I so threatening? Al- that well, yeah, threatening. you feel like you're yeah. putting me in a retirement home. Um, but you know what? If you, <laughs> I would like to be surrounded by my loved ones unless I'm incapable or too uh, hard to deal with. And then, well, you know, yeah, put me in there. When your loved ones leave to go get you some new porridge, that's when I'll slide in with this VHS of love actually that I will hoard for this moment. All right. I appreciate that. Um, if you want to keep the conversation going about love actually or this today's episode, The Matrix, or even The New Matrix. When it comes out, uh, you can go to our Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section. Of course, our Facebook group is equally amazing. So jump in, keep the conversation going. There are great people uh, leading these conversations, and everyone's an equal contributor. So I'm excited to continue to read the responses to Love Actually because they have made me rethink some of my positions and then actually hold firm to other ones. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, by the time you're in a retirement home, I think Mm. we'll have like movie screens that I can hold up like poster board outside of your window, little flat, flexible things that I can roll around and just sort of broadcast love, love actually at you. But I need a set of, I would need like a set of Bluetooth headphones because unless there's a speaker component there. I'm sure it will be like implanted in your head. Okay, great. Then, then we're good. All right, Amy, are you ready? I have two choices for you to spool or unspool it. You decide. The year is 1999. Napster, MySpace, and Bluetooth are released. SpongeBob premieres. Bill Clinton is acquitted. Wow, what a year. Dr. Jack Kevorkian gets 10 to 25 years for second-degree murder for his participation in a physician-assisted suicide. Uh, Violent tragedy rocks Colorado and the nation after two students carry out the Columbine High School Massacre. And around the world, people anticipate the millennium bug and its computer-caused chaos on the dawn of Y2K. The popular films are The Sixth Sense, Galaxy Quest, The Brer Witch Project, all which we covered here on the show, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, and today's film, The Matrix. What a great year for cinema. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Oh, I'm ready to tell you. All right. The Matrix. It is written and directed by siblings Lana Wachowski and Lily Wachowski. They are two filmmakers who together made, I would say, one of the most singular and expensive studio blockbusters in which their 600-page comic book storyboard convinced Warner Brothers to give them $60 million and essentially 
leave them alone to do what they wanted to do. Um, the one time that the Warner Brothers studio executives tried to scare the Wachowskis into submission, like, hey, you, we're giving you money. Obey us. Listen to us. Midway through production, what happened is the Wachowskis quit filming early that day to watch a Chicago Bulls game and said, you know what? The studio realized that nobody else can finish this movie but us, so you have to give in and let us do whatever we want. So what did they want to do with The Matrix? They wanted to make a film that referenced all of their favorite movies and all of their favorite philosophical questions about the meaning of life. It is a film that is a smash up of kung fu and mysticism, and it stars Keanu Reeves as a hacker named Thomas Anderson. Early in the film, Thomas Anderson realizes that his cubicle job life is a delusion created by machines, and he is really just computer food in a living coffin for computer programs like Agent Smith, played by Hugo Weaving. Thanks to lessons he gets from revolutionaries like Morpheus, who's played by Lawrence Fishburne, and Trinity, who's played by Carrie Ann Moss, and even eventual turncoats to the cause like Cypher, played by Joey Pantano, Keanu learns that his powerful online hacker identity, Neo, is kind of sort of who he actually is once he learns to harness the power of the Matrix. Take a listen. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. The Matrix was released on March 31st, 1999, just as the world did start to get really, really, really nervous about the turn of the millennium. And you could not escape hearing about how Y2K was going to destroy everything on the world and that, like all electricity would die and that we would just collapse. Um, the weird thing is that in 1999, only 4% of the world considered itself online. But the web and thoughts about the web and wonders about the web and the look of the web was everywhere. Even in the number one song on the charts that weekend, the dominant song, I would say, that entire year of 1999, Believe by Cher, in which her voice gets a little bit robotic, like she's getting online, and in which she talks about believing. I would say time to a movie about belief that Neo could be, gasp, the one to save humanity. Take it away, Cher.
Classic Cher. That was the one where she was like sitting on a cannon on a large ship, right? No, 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 no. Oh. That's the one where she's like watching a girl at a nightclub. Like she's the guardian angel of this girl who's like boyfriend with dreadlocks is cheating on her. Oh, and she's wow. like a kind of cyber angel. I forgot how how much they made her voice turn into a robot voice in that. It, I mean, was this like the beginning of autotune, Cher? It's the first time I think I heard the word autotune. It's so funny because I always thought of autotune as something that came up more with like younger people. But uh, I guess Andy Hildebrand is the inventor of the voice pitch correcting software called autotune. And the first song it was ever used on was Believe by Cher. Whoa. Whoa, yep. really? Yep. Whoa. Wow. Do you think they could autotune the cold out of my voice for this podcast? It's worth a try. Devin, get her an auto-tune right now. Get her yeah. cleaned up. Make Do her sound like a... Do you believe me always <laughs> the one? Amy, I guess my question to you is, this movie is huge, right? Considered a classic of cinema. I, to many people, one of the best sci-fi films of all time. I don't think there's much debating there. No, it's but, a landmark in terms of style. It's a landmark in terms of tone. It's a landmark in terms of fight choreography. It really changed the way that films used fighting, not just even, you know, bullet time, which like immediately got overused, but just the kind of like wire foo, kung fu, I can do anything, even just the look of the hero that we were finally transitioning out of like big buff dudes with machine guns in like the eighties and nineties into like these kind of whiplash looking flexible fighters like Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu Reeves. It really shook up Hollywood top to bottom. Like Hollywood was like, Oh my God, we have been trapped in a musty box. How can we be cool again? Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you, do you remember when you saw the matrix? Do you remember seeing it in the theater? Cause I have a, such a distinct memory of it. And in that final sequence, when he flies away, right, I sat in my seat really like in awe of what I just saw because it was, it was everything you described, truly mind blowing. And I felt like I had seen something major. Like it just felt, I remember that feeling going like, whoa, and wanting to talk about it with other people and then go back and see it again. Like that feeling of wanting to run back to the theater immediately, I hadn't had in such a long time, except for Phantom Menace, because I bought my tickets. I was like, I'm going to love this movie so much. I bought three tickets in the same day, morning, afternoon, and night. The first time I was like, huh, I don't know if I like this movie, but maybe it was because I'm too excited for it. Then I went back and saw it in the afternoon. I was like, oh, maybe it's better. I, I was like brainwashing myself into the movie. And by the last time I saw it in the same day, I, I started to find some nuances that I thought were interesting. But uh, that was just a forced uh, going back to the theater. But The Matrix, I wanted because I felt like there was so much to see and there was so much to get. I just was kind of blown away by the entire experience. What made you decide to see The Matrix? I mean, what what was it? They were like, this is a movie I have to see. Do you remember deciding to buy a ticket? Oh, yeah. No, you? yeah. No, definitely. For me, back in 1999, I had this weird thing how I'd pick movies. If it was in the theater, I would go see it. I was not <laughs> a critical movie goer. Amy, I saw a movie called Tomcats in the theater where a guy gets his testicles removed and it falls on someone's pizza. I saw that in the theater opening night. Why? Because it was there. 
But it was 99. I had no responsibilities. I had no girlfriend. I could just go willy-nilly during the middle of the day. I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. That was a good time. Those are the, the fun days of, of film. I remember there was a time where I would see every summer movie, too. Like, I'm, I'm just in. But at this point, too, Keanu is not the Keanu that we know now. Like, this is a turning point for Keanu as well. Yeah. I mean, we talked about Keanu earlier this summer when we did an episode on Speed. And Keanu, in those years between Speed and The Matrix, has gone on, like, some kind of crazy turns. Like, he does Speed, and everyone's like, whoa, Keanu, like, you should be an action star, dude. Like, you did Point Break, and you did Speed. Yeah, man, like, this is your new future. And Keanu was like, absolutely not. No way. I'm going to do, you know, art films. I'm going to do Shakespeare. You are not going to turn me into an action star. And let his star quality, I would say, really plummet. I, I, I respect Keanu going on his like artistic quest. But when he got cast in The Matrix in 1999, it was because a lot of people said no. He wasn't considered that valuable anymore. And this yeah. really rebooted him. It was interesting because it was a return to form to Keanu because he had done some weird action movies that were not good. I think there was a movie with like him and Morgan Freeman in an ice cream truck uh, about like cold fusion. And then there was like, uh, you know, Devil's Advocate, which is great for many reasons, but quality is not one of them. Um, and then there was even that other movie, which we did on How This Get Made, uh, Johnny Mnemonic, which has like, I guess, you know, it's like a cyberpunk thriller where he's like a hard drive in his head, but none of these movies really were connecting. And and I wasn't seeing, as much as I saw every movie in the theater, I wasn't lining up to see like uh, A Walk in the Clouds. Yeah, no, totally. In fact, my friend Alex Papadamus, who is one of the most brilliant people, I think, to write about the movies, he has a book coming out on Keanu. And he talks about how in this stretch, Keanu was fighting against kind of what I guess you could call like the Keanu effect, where he would sign on to a movie that he thought looked like an interesting art house movie, like Johnny Mnemonic, which was supposed to be more of like a small, personal, strange sci-fi movie, more like an art house movie than a blockbuster. But when he would sign on, then the producers would be like, well, now that we have Keanu, let's make it like bigger. And like studio executives would get more involved in any weird project he tried to make. The studios would then try to turn it into a blockbuster. And then he would be stuck in a bad blockbuster when it was like the opposite of what he was trying to do. And that is what happened to Johnny Mnemonic. It wasn't even supposed to be like the movie that it ended up being at all. Well, now... My question still goes back to you. Like, what was your reaction in seeing The Matrix the first time? Where were you? Were you interested in seeing it? You know, were you even on this path of wanting to write, talk about movies at this point? Like, I would just want to get your mindset on it. I don't think I saw The Matrix for years, to be honest. Really? Yeah, it's wow. weird. I don't, I don't know. In 1999, I was watching more like old movies and not watching new movies that much. We didn't have a good movie theater in my town. So like to go to the movies, it was like a little bit of a hurdle. We would drive, you know, what? We would drive like 45 minutes to go see Memento. I remember doing that one really specifically. But yeah, I like missed it because I also think I was a little bit of like a sneery McSneer pants. It was like a blockbuster. No. Why would I watch a modern blockbuster? I was a terrible person at the time. But it even took me a with little the bit. discourse around it? Yeah. Even with the discourse around it because all my friends are snobs too. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, I had a... Uh, a gathering of some friends the other night, COVID friendly. And uh, we were talking about this movie and I was surprised at how many people had not seen The Matrix in that group. And I was like, how could you miss this film? It's just one of those, it's not like Star Wars to me where I get it. If you don't like Star Wars, you don't like Star Trek, like that can be put on a shelf 
you know, as like, that's not my cup of tea. But this feels like it transcends that. But I guess I'm learning not for everyone. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, have you ever had, I guess never, I guess you've never had those periods in your life where you kind of dropped out of seeing new movies for like a year or two. Yeah, I did when I had my first kid. That definitely gotcha. was a time where I was like, mm, don't know what's happening. Yeah. So there's like a like like a ring, a tree ring in your life where if I cut off your thigh, I can see the movies that you didn't watch that yeah, year. Yeah, 2014 probably was a rough year for me to be catching up on films. Man, what were the good movies of 2014 anyway? <laughs> now we're really going off topic. I love it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, case. I mean, 2014 was like, well, 2014, John Wick comes out. I did sneak out to see John Wick because I heard how great it was. One night late at the Vista, I saw John Wick. But the first movie that I saw in the theater with, you know, my wife, and we had just had our baby, but we were sneaking out, was Interstellar, and it was not a good choice. It was, <laughs> the, the the subject matter was not good. It really fucked us up. We walked out incredibly depressed. It was not, it was too much for us to handle. Ugh. Well, at least like The Matrix has kind of like a neat tie to John Wick besides the whole Keanu Reeves of it all. It's here on The Matrix that like Keanu gets really close with his stunt double, you know, Chad Zaleski, who like doubles for him. And while he's doubling for Keanu Reeves, like breaks his ribs on this movie, like breaks a knee, I think, dislocates a shoulder and then eventually directs John Wick and puts and puts Keanu in it and becomes like, I think, like a new version of like updating what an action film looks like. I think those movies have been like super influential again. So it's kind of like Keanu just keeps popping up and being like, ta-da, we were bored with one kind of fighting and now I will do a new one again. Well, I I think one of the things that makes this movie really interesting was the fighting is such a large part of the film. And you described this early on, like this script was called, uh, you know, uh, very lovingly in the studio system, the script that no one understands. And the reason why they couldn't get this vision uh, out there was because how could you visualize something that we hadn't seen yet? So this storyboard that you described, this 600 uh, storyboard uh, presentation that they finally had to give um, to show people what they wanted to do, f- finally help people visualize what this movie could be. But then they had to actualize it. And so one of the ways they had to actualize it was to figure out how are they going to do these fights? And these fights are, they're not, it's not fake Fighting. This is real fighting. Yes, maybe sped up. Of, well, of course, sped up. But um, this is true kung fu. Like these characters are learning real martial arts and putting them together. And this legendary Hong Kong stunt coordinator, uh, Wu Ping, he was like, "No, I'm not going to do this movie because this is just it's ridiculous. I'll do it if you give me this amount of money." And they're like, "Well, we're not going to give you that amount of money." And he's like, "All right, how about this? I'll do the movie if." I have complete control of the fights. I'll have to train the actors with my own team for months before you even start shooting. And the Wachowskis say, okay, do it. And I think it's this idea of empowering someone whose art is that, like the art of fight. Like that's why everyone looks so amazing in this film. It's not cheated. And I know we talked about like actors who go to like army camp for two weeks and get dirty and they feel like, oh, I'm, I now know what it was like to fight in a war, but truly this turned them into for all intents and purposes. And I think you see it all in Keanu's work moving forward. Amazing martial artists. Well, yeah, and it and it manages to get whooping like tons of money because he becomes like the hip guy. I mean, after this, he does like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He does Kill Bill. Like he really has this like massive Hollywood career that starts after this. 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. But I'm realizing as I'm talking about it, I think I know why I didn't care about seeing The Matrix now in 1999. And it's because I thought all movies that took place on the internet were really dumb and wrong and idiotic. Well, they always were, right? They always were, yeah. Hackers. (laughs) Right, or like the Sandra Bullock one where like she orders a, yeah, the net where she orders a pizza online, but it's like the weirdest website. I mean, Keanu's, like Keanu's star had fallen so much at this point that like they actually offered this role to Sandra Bullock. They were like, we could rewrite it for her because she had like leveled up over him from speed times. But yeah, like net stuff. I mean, that's what happens, right? When you watch a movie about the net, the computer always looks wrong and like email never looks right. And like even today, I feel like in the year of our Lord 2022 nearly, when a character gets an email on screen, it like shows up as like a pink box or something. And the email is talking to them like, hi, you have an email. Like that never happens. And they're like really rare and excited to check an email account. I don't know why the internet always has to look so dumb in movies, but it it really is. It really soured me on it, on, on seeing a movie that was just like super cool, man, you know, like super cool shade, super cool web, like do this is what the future is. Well, I think that there's this instinct of trying to capture what cyberpunk is. And oftentimes, like you were saying, it's kind of bastardized, you know, probably one of the closest you know, things that we have to it as a marker is something like Blade Runner. It works. It's like this, you know, we have our own theories about Blade Runner, but like that's a very hard needle to thread. And I think what people try to do is go like, well, we'll make it cyberpunk, but accessible or, you know, and it, it seems like it's often made by people who are watching. It's the way I feel about that show on uh, HBO with Zendaya, Euphoria, where I feel like this is like a 30 year old white man talking about what the high school experience currently is. It it feels removed. But I think where this movie succeeds is it may present as like an internet movie or a movie about like computers, but it is not that at all. Like it's so much bigger than that. And I think the hacking subplot of it is so kind of small and, and encapsulated. But I'm sure the studio is like, well, that's how we have to kind of position it right like we because we can't explain this movie because this movie is a tough sell i think ultimately to show people like what you're in store for so you have to show the fights and the sunglasses and the computer code and be like okay you get it get on board yeah i mean i love that like will smith has started telling people what it was like when they asked him if he wanted to star in the matrix like the way that the wachowskis pitched it to him and how confused he was have you heard him talk about this no oh Okay, you gotta listen to this. So dude, we're thinking like, like imagine you're in a fight and then you like jump. Imagine if you could stop jumping in the middle of the jump. Sam, say that again? But then people could see around you 360 while you're jumping, while you're stopped jumping, right? And then we're gonna invent these cameras and then people can see the whole jump while you stop in the middle of the jump. 
So I made Wild Wild West. That's amazing. I don't know if I believe it. And I'll tell you why. Because when you talk to Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, one of the things that the Wachowskis were very intent on before having them read the script or consider the script was to talk to them about the philosophy behind the film. And that included like having them understand Simulacrum, uh, which is a philosophical treaty by the sociologist uh, Jean, Jean Baudrillard, uh, where they examine the relationships between reality and symbols and society. You know, they talked about Plato's cave, all these big ideas. It didn't seem like the Wachowskis were coming in here saying it's a shoot 'em up. That seems to me like Will Smith's agent was like, yeah, yeah, you're going to have guns and you're going to run around circles and blah, 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 blah. You know, they're looking at storyboards. But it, to me, it feels like, and from everything that I know about the Wachowskis, this movie was incredibly well thought out and based in something that they really wanted to explore from a philosophical point of view. Um, I mean, I think that they were playing it kind of as though there was the Matrix, like that they were presenting the world of the movie that they were telling people it was and then mm. the world of the movie that they that they wanted it to be deep down. You know, like I, I feel like you can talk to Keanu about philosophy because he's a guy who like played Siddhartha. Like he's definitely a seeker personality. Mm-hmm. So maybe they just uh, use the wrong approach, I guess, on Will Smith. They're like, Will Smith is going to want to know about bullet time. And it's like, no, but Keanu is going to want to know about your soul. But at the same time, Lily would tell people like what this is her quote. She when they would ask her what the Matrix is about, she would say, It's about robots versus kung fu, which is like the most right. reductive way that I think you could explain that. But then in because the Matrix like encourages you to overthink everything, in a way it kind of is. You know, like it's about like robots, like things that are programmed, versus like kung fu, like a kind of humanist athleticism that you get by personal study with a master. And I think that is sort of the fight that's at the center of the matrix. Are you a robot or do you believe in like humanity teaching humanity? Yeah, I think you're right. They were very astute at understanding how to position this movie, but what they were doing behind it was so much deeper. I mean, as a matter of fact, Lily Wachowski recently was talking about how the matrix was written as a trans metaphor, as they were dealing with this idea of, transitioning. And and when you watch it with those eyes, it's so apparent. It's almost shockingly apparent. And that's kind of what I love about this film. But let, let's let her explain it. I love that. So the, how, um, how meaningful those films are to trans people and the way that they come up to me and say, this, these movies saved my life because when you talk about transformation, specifically in the world of science fiction, which is just about imagination, it's like, and world building, and like the idea of the seemingly impossible becoming possible, I think is like, that's why it speaks to them so much. And um, I'm grateful that I can be a part, throwing them a rope to help them along their journey. Yeah, I mean, one of the Wachowski's ideas is that, you know, they have the character in here called Switch, who's played by Belinda McClory. Yeah, in their original conception of Switch, Switch would change genders depending on whether or not Switch was in the Matrix or in the Nebuchadnezzar. And that that was going to be kind of their nod to like somebody having a person inside of them that is the person they feel like is the real them. No, I read that. I love that. Uh, I mean, it went as far as the actress who auditioned for that role only thought she was playing 
one part. So it was like it got that far before they decided to just have her play both roles. It's true. But I feel like you still see these kind of vestiges of it, even when even in stuff that kind of today, I think reads more like girl power. But I love that moment when like Trinity meets Neo for the first time and he is like, oh, I thought you'd be a guy. Yeah. Trinity. The Trinity that cracked the IRSD base. That was a long time ago. Jesus. What? I just thought, um, you were a guy. Most guys do. And I, I like that because I feel like it works on two levels. Like, yeah, I just assume that you were like a dude like me or like the internet is like a dude business, but it is about like projection or sort of assigning a gender to a type, to a person based on how you guess that they are because of how, what you see of them pre- presenting. Well, I guess, you know, I don't want to be reductive and I'm sure people can disagree with me, but that's why I think the opening of this film is so interesting because not only does it open up on your non-star, you know, which is Carrie Ann Moss, who is amazing in this film, but she's a woman and she does probably at this point in 1999, the most amazing action scene that you have ever seen, right? And that is really, I think, a powerful statement just in representation, right? And this is a movie that I think, and the sequels continue to do this, really is cognizant of representation uh, and and different faces without having to be answering for it, right? I feel like there's a lot, there's a big move right now. It's like, well, it's very conscious that we are making sure that we represent everything. But this movie is doing it, I feel, very naturalistically. Like You get to see this thing and I think that's why people fell in love with Carrie Ann Moss because it's like, oh my God, like, whoa, she's so cool. And that's a that's a pretty amazing moment. I mean, to open up on her like that. Yeah, I mean, Carrie Ann Moss, she gets that first kind of frozen in midair crane kick. Like she is the person who introduces you in the audience to like what the style of this movie is going to be. I mean, that fight is incredible. I love the part where like the truck is speeding towards her and she like evaporates right in the last second, like into the phone book. Yeah. But it, yeah, it starts with her. Like she she brings us into what this all looks like. What I kept thinking watching this movie for the first time is that, you know, the history of people stepping into fantasy and doing amazing things is actually very female centered because they keep talking about it with Keanu. Like they tell Keanu that he's like Alice in Wonderland. They tell Keanu that he is like... Uh, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. They tell Keanu that he's like Sleeping Beauty. Like this, there is this whole history of like female-led stories. That is interesting because we're talking about the preconceived notion of what a man's role is and what a woman's role is. You know, Trinity is stronger than Neo or leading Neo through this world, you know, as is Morpheus, but Trinity is really the partner, right? And bringing him through until he achieves his you know, true self. That is an interesting switch. Like, I think that they are playing with our conception. And and like you just said, by even having Keanu call it out. And this movie does do a lot of exposition. I think, you know, the studio made them do that. I don't think it's a bad thing. But this movie is about, in many ways, if you want to be incredibly reductive, it is talking the talk and walking the walk, which is um, something that I think so many people can relate to. And what I think this movie does so well is it is everything to everyone. When I was doing my research for the film, I can see Catholic scholars talking about how this is a God story and how we can bring in, you know, 
the the that this is something that's so influenced by Catholicism. I can listen to, you know, philosophers talk about how this is this is Plato's cave actualized. This, you know, you can talk to so many people about what this movie represents. Obviously, it was written from the point of view of being a trans metaphor, but it works on so many levels because it is all about how you self-actualize, who you are when you understand what the world is and how you want to be in that world. And I think that that is something incredibly universal. And very rarely do we get something that can touch in every area, in very disparate areas, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I mean, there's something in this movie that to me feels like like a magpie nest, you know, where the Wachowskis have taken everything they love. They're like, do you like references to The Wizard of Oz? We've got that. Do you like Kung Fu movies? We've got that. Like, do you love that little hand wiggle that Bruce Lee does? We can do that in it too. And at the same time, as we're throwing in like latex outfits and cyber chatter, we're also going to have so many ideas crammed into this movie that you can take your pick as an audience member. Like, which is the question that most relates to you? Like, is it the question of like, is the world a prison? Is it the question of like, is your reality real? Is it like, can I get a super cool girlfriend who will teach me stuff? Is it like, if you see, if you keep looking online, you can find truth there. Is it the question of like, are you special deep down? Like there are so many levels that you can kind of pick your current on this and be like, that is the movie that I want to watch in this movie. It also makes us question what we believe and why do we believe it? And obviously religion relies a lot on faith, right? So you have to have the faith that you believe in these larger things in the world. And this movie is kind of preaching that, like this faith that what you are feeling is right. And I would even say, in a way, to draw a continuation to this, this is where we are getting some of this, you know, fake news and this idea of these stories that we are engaging with, like this other reality. Are we, you know, there's a whole conversation like, are we in assimilation? There was a movie about it, uh, you know, last year. Like, are we just pawns? But I think this movie, because it's so widely uh, acclaimed and watched and embraced, However you want to view it, it helps your story because I'm waking up. I'm waking up to the idea that what the newscasters tell me is not real, that there might be uh, a pizza place where they're, you know, sex trafficking kids. Not to say that that is all a good thing, but it it does force people to question and believe in their questioning. And it leads them down, you know, sometimes incredibly positive roads, sometimes incredibly negative roads. But I think this idea of questioning authority and why we do what we do and why we believe and why we listen to and why we watch. This is something that I think we're getting more and more as a culture into, you know, what it's not about the general anymore. It's everything's becoming much more specific and you can find your own groups of people who believe the same thing. You can find your crew of the Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you can, you can continually feel powerful when you're surrounded by people who believe what you think. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the whole idea of a red pill is that if you pretend that you're right, that this idea is like secret knowledge that only special people have, then any sort of bullshit feels special to the group that believes it. Do you know what I mean? Like what I see in this film and in the reaction to like it and the whole, the whole red pill culture is like the need of everyone to believe that they are special and the hero of their own story. And that 
you know, no matter how outlandish, I guess, a theory sounds to people who are on the outside who haven't taken the red pill. Like, if you believe that you are the one person who knows this information that, like, the word breadsticks at this pizza place is code for, like, would you like to buy a child? Right. Then you feel special. You're the person who's the hero who could save this because you're the only one who knows You're the this. one. Yeah. You're the one. Which is, you know, part of what I think I've always wrestled with with this movie is, you know this about me. Like, I hate movies about the one. Right. I'm just not into them. I think they're like, honestly, kind of by nature, boring. Because if a character is like the one, well, then there's no drama, right? Like, cool. They were chosen. They're special. They're born into it. They're related to a Skywalker, like whatever. And it means no matter what happens in the plot, they're going to rise to the occasion. They might harumph about it, but whatever. Like, you know how the movie is going to end if somebody is a chosen one. I would love to see more movies where like chosen ones just quit. Honestly, like one of my goals with like the Harry Potter movies was, you know, how they were kind of like implying that there was like another chosen one, Mm -hmm. maybe like at the school. Like I thought that maybe Harry Potter might end with who's the who's the who's the who's the dork? Oh, wait. Yeah. Neville Longbottom. There was a moment in in one of the like second to last films where I thought they were hinting that maybe Neville Longbottom was the was the chosen one all along and that everybody had just been looking at Harry and they were wrong and that the chosen one was like this other guy. And I thought that would have been the only way to make a chosen one narrative awesome is like, yeah, you all thought it was this guy who looked more like a chosen one. But really, it was like this other person under the surface, because like, honestly, you know what I kept thinking watching this Matrix this time is that all of these poor people on the Nebuchadnezzar, like... They were awakened, they took the pill, and then they wind up on the ship and like learn that, oh, you're not the chosen one either. Like you're just average. Like it's a ship full of people who are told you're not actually going to do the really cool thing, but maybe you can keep this ship going until we find somebody who's cooler than you. I don't and, agree with that because there are also people on that ship that are human born. Like they are, they are children of Zion, right? Not everybody is uh, awakened from the Matrix. But I will Not say that everybody, but isn't that like why I would say that, you know, Cypher decides to like turn turncoat? Like, I, I feel for Cypher. Like, he's been pulled out of this world where he was able to, you know, live in 1999 forever, where he was able to eat food that wasn't mush, and where now he's just told that he's just like some guy on the ship, and that like Keanu, when he shows up, is like way cooler than he is. I mean, everybody wants to feel special. But and like, I, Joey is told <laughs> over and over again that he's not that cool. Because he's not Keanu. He's not the chosen one. So I, but I would I would disagree with you here in the sense of saying that, yes, the chosen one is the one that can start the revolution to defeat the machines. But that would bring the greater good for all the people. It's not like it's not I don't think this is a Superman story where it's like and now you will just do all the good work and we'll all benefit from it. I think it's about. They are at a disadvantage. They need to be able to compete on the same level to still survive. And he is the the person that has been foretold to basically change the world. And if that change happens, hopefully, as the prophecy is foretold, then the humans can rise up again. And I think what we deal with in this movie and, and a little bit in the second film, I, I, I just immediately started watching the second film and I'm going to go into the third one after that. Um, the problems with being the one. And I think that that's something that the Wachowskis do talk about, like the results of that. Like what are the problems with now having everyone look up to you as a higher being? And and 
those yeah, issues. The way that, you know, like in the second one, where people are just leaving him gifts and at his door and like yeah, and like waiting outside. Yeah, I yeah. mean that sucks. But also, imagine being Joey Pants. Imagine like that you knew what a steak tasted like, but and then you were like kicked voting? into a world where you didn't get to know what a steak tasted like. Like, like at least for the people who were born in Zion, they don't they don't even know what a steak is. Okay, okay I really want you to picture yourself like you're on a ship. That's yes. miserable. The ship yeah. looks terrible. The food Awful. is terrible. I mean, listen to them like talking about how terrible the food is. It feels like you're eating runny eggs. You know, a bowl of snot. Do you know what it really reminds me of? Tasty wheat. Did you ever eat tasty wheat? No, but technically neither did you. Well, that's exactly my point. Exactly. Because you have to wonder now. How do the machines really know what tasty wheat tasted like, huh? Maybe they got it wrong. Maybe what I think tasty wheat tasted like actually tasted like uh, oatmeal or uh, or tuna fish. That makes you wonder about a lot of things. Uh, you, you take chicken, for example, maybe they couldn't figure out what to make chicken taste like, which is why chicken tastes like everything. And maybe they couldn't Shut figure up. out. You're stuck on this ship waiting for some other dude to be cool. And you have a crush on this girl's Trinity and she doesn't care about you because she's predicted to love the chosen one. Imagine how awful that would be. But feel. she's never told anyone that. It's not like she's walking around going, I will only fall in love with the chosen one. Like everyone is keeping their secret to themselves that the Oracle told them. Here's what I'll say, Amy. I don't, I'm not not going on that thought experiment with you, but I will say that in my life, that is something that I often do. Like whether or not it's, I can talk about it in the last year or so. There are people that I have supported, movements that I have supported that have been led by people that are smarter than me, that are doing work on a level that they have figured something out. And I happily follow them because I know that my body being there or my financial support or my um, my ability to open my own mind to how they are thinking will be a betterment for society, right? I don't believe that I need to be the leader of every one of these movements. I can have something that I'm very good in, but I also want to defer to somebody else. Now, take away all the specifics of politics, but in a certain way, that's what we're doing there too. You're saying, I, when you vote, you know, in a, in a free system where, where your vote actually matters, I am voting for someone to lead the way. Yeah, I mean, that's how what I, though I hate it when like you do that work and you vote for somebody and, and then all they do for the rest of your life is like send you emails like, help, I'm panicking. I need you. I need you, Amy. And it's like, well, I did the work. I voted for you. Yeah, and but we, the, you now, know, now yeah. you, you are the chosen one, like literally. But then we also live in a society where we elevate someone and then want to take them down, right? That's something that's really interesting to me that we, that this movie obviously doesn't explore because there's not enough time to. But this idea being like, our society loves to build people up and say, oh my gosh, this is the ideal. And then we start to poke holes in them until we make them not the one. And then we find another one and we put them up on the a pedestal. Not to say that happens all the time, but we are trying to find, we love to raise and we love to pull down. Um, and that's an interesting thing. And maybe that's a way of us wanting to all be the one but more importantly, in my mind, about the one, and I get what you're saying, like, it's ultimately boring. I think Ryan Johnson did an amazing job of trying to subvert that with yeah, Ray in I his agree. film. I think it was bastardized in, like, Rise of Skywalker. I was like, God damn it. Like, it was so yeah. close to making it a little bit more Democratic. Open. Any person yeah. can be cool and important. 
Well, then, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I do think that maybe you're just a better person than Joey Pants. And like, I, I still relate to Joey Pants. I, I relate think- to Joey Pants, too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get like him. Like, I want to lead a good life. Make me an actor. Make me famous. But in that moment where he could pull the plug out of Neo, he doesn't do it because at his core, at his root, he still believes. He still wants the ultimate freedom. He wants to come back to the surface and not be at the Earth's core in Zion. Like, he doesn't want to be there, but... He's like, I've seen this happen so many times. You know, Morpheus has done this so many times and all these people have died at the hands of agents and I've lived it and I'm sick of it. And I just want to eat steak and be an actor, um, maybe even a Joey Pants level actor. But at that moment when he could pull the plug, he doesn't because he still believes. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You know what's so interesting too is like to to go back into the matrix it means like living in a forever 1999 which has taken on like all of the significance to me because I feel like 1999 was one of the last moments in which our country was kind of innocent even though we were doing terrible things to other mm-hmm. countries like to live in America meant being innocent so it's like to go back into the matrix and to eat your steak and to like be an actor, you know, or whatever he wants to do is right now, like at this moment in time, it seems like a really great deal, honestly, because like, you know, right at this moment, even though we all know about the internet and even though Cher is like singing with her voice sounding like robotic and auto-tuned, like you don't know in 1999 that the internet is going to become as destructive as it becomes. Like it's a movie about the power of the internet that doesn't actually know yet how the internet will use that power and how the internet will sort of disrupt like the calm life that we see in the matrix. But I love there's two lines in this movie and I'm going to bastardize them both because my memory is never great at memorizing lines where they talk about humanity and how humanity exists. And one of the ways that humanity thrives is in an imperfect world, a world that is built to create strife, right? Because the robots created a perfect world and the the batteries, the human bodies didn't take, they wouldn't buy it. Like we are built to thrive in strife, right? And on some level, we have to have forces working against us. So there is this idea that like Joey Pants is like, well, I need this. I want this life where I'm going to eat steak and be an actor and everything will be great. But that want doesn't actually make us happy. We want the struggle. We want the fight. And that idea is really interesting to me. It's like, we want it to be easier. Of course we do. But if it's easy, do we enjoy anything that is in front of us? Because part of the joy of life is feeling the accomplishment of doing something. You know, whether that is working out for 30 minutes a day, whether that's raising a child, whether that is, you know, 
sending off an email and closing your computer, whatever you have determined as a goal for yourself, like if we didn't have any obstacles, we wouldn't be happy. And I think it's funny that he represents that that idea. Like, I just want to, I just want it easy. I just want it easy. But life is never easy and we don't actually thrive in those situations. Um, That's true. We think we do, but we don't. That's true. And it, and it does by having like the symbol of the stake be a steak that even he knows isn't real, even though he can taste it and it feels great and he's so happy mm-hmm. to be eating the steak. I mean, that does say that like all of the things that we use as comforts are kind of a delusion. You know, like everything you used to like distract yourself or to make yourself happy that you aspire to, all of these things that you want to be, you know, wanting to be rich and famous and eat a bunch of steak, that there is an emptiness to it. I mean, because what I think is happening is like, even at this time, even though I look back and kind of, romanticize in a bit 1999 as like a calmer Mm -hmm. time. I remember being alive in 1999 and everybody seemed really miserable. Like they seemed like that was already like the glum end of society. You know, we had those American beauties where it's like, what is the purpose of even being alive? Like we were making so many movies about this fact that things seemed comfortable, but that had to be wrong. I mean, at this time we have like what the Truman show, um, yeah, you've got and like then, Mulholland Drive. I mean, when you think about it, even the Toy Story is kind of like the Matrix. It's like you think you are free, but you are a toy. You belong to somebody. There was this like deep dissatisfaction. I feel like, and in then the we had, and then we had a real tragedy, right? Like this, this global tragedy of nine eleven. Or oh wait, now now there's something even more at play. And then I think that that also made some people retreat more. You know, we talked about this in other episodes where it was like, oh, the movies that came out after it were maybe a little less thought-provoking and just trying to give you those happy feelings. There's something interesting in this movie because it's not only saying we are not happy when we are happy, that we need to be unhappy to be happy, but it's also saying humans are cancer. Like, everything that we touch is to destroy something else. The only way that we thrive is in destroying anything that is good. So we are destroying and then mourning and then achieving and then mourning. And it's like we are constantly in this battle of what is the next thing. And I think we could talk about that throughout, you know, that's consumerism. And then that's something that is in these philosophical texts. Like what are we taking in to make ourselves feel good? And that, but that what we're taking in is actually actively destroying other things. And, you know, now we're talking about the idea that we're all on our phones and we're not having these social interactions and we have parasocial relationships. So we're constantly like saying, all I want is this, but it's easier to get that. So I'm going to do that. It's the fast food conundrum. And like, we are, we are at fault. Like, and so there's something really interesting in many ways about it's not just Neo being the one, it's all of us recognizing how we are destructive. Like even Morpheus, by challenging this crew, making them go out, find the next one, do the next thing, because he believes it. Like he is, he believes this thing. He could be a wacko. He could be a complete, you know, uh, you know yeah. con artist, cult <clears throat> he leader. He could be like a pack apocalypse nowing everybody. Exactly. And so he's brought this crew time and time and time and time and time again because he believes something. And that's, you know, and that's and people follow him and they believe that they, you know, that he is doing something right. But he is also creating that destruction. He is instead of 
you know, building up Zion, he's out searching for something bigger. It's like, well, not let's not deal with the house. It's like, well, let me go further away from my house. It's the way that I think a lot of people in COVID are like, well, I'm out. I'm going to move to Salt Lake City. And then they go to Salt Lake City and they're like, oh, I'm actually unhappy here because now I don't have any of my friends and none of my support system. I'm going to move back. Like, I think we've seen a lot of people move back, you know, to where they moved from because it's like, well, I'm happier here. I'm going to do this now. In a way, I think... Part of it is all of us need to come to terms with being the one and seeing the reality that we want to live and and trying to live it the right way. Well, yeah. And and I think that that dissatisfaction is probably the pull of this movie, like is why people like this movie so much, because it tells you if you don't feel that happy, there's probably a reason and there's probably something you can do about it. You know, like, I mean, nobody in this movie is happy. That's what I think is interesting. Like there's nobody, whether they're in the matrix or out of the matrix is like, this is great. You know, like even, even agent Smith hates what he's doing in life. Like he hates the internet. He hates being around humans. Like being around humans is driving him crazy. He's a cop. He's a cop that is forced to do this job with people that are beneath him, you know, on, on a, on a very bare bones level. I mean, he's like rebelling against the internet, like, especially in the sequels, you know, he, he goes rogue himself, but I think like agent Smith is this example really early on about how the internet and being online does make you go crazy. I mean, right. yeah, like to know so much, to be so many places, to be around that many humans and to hear what they're thinking all the time, it makes you snap. I mean, he's so maybe creating Agent- a vacuum, though. Yeah. Agent Smith is creating the vacuum that like, we talk about this all the time. Like we're all just yelling into a vacuum of people with the same opinions. And what he's doing is creating versions of himself to say, I'm right, you're wrong. And that's yeah. a crazy, you know, again, this is I mean, the he movie- is like the proto like Russian troll, right? Yeah. Like. One thing that I think the Wachowskis did that becomes even more apparent in the la- in the later Matrix films, because like casting was, you're right, like you kind of touched on this earlier. They have cast these Matrix films where without drawing attention to it at the time, I don't even remember anybody talking about it at the time. Like they have populated the world of human beings with, you know, lots of people of color, lots of women. I mean, Jada Pinkett Smith is one of the big stars in the Old, second one. Of young old, young, all types of people, all, all, what a range, but all of the agents are white men. Like all of the agents are white men. There's no diversity in the agents at all, which feels very like, I don't know. Well, but Russian bot on Twitter to me. (laughs) Well, I guess what I'll talk about there is if we're talking about it from the trans metaphor, uh, and again, I'm doing my best to kind of see it in that lens. I'm sure somebody who's, you know, come out in that way can speak to this much better, but there is this idea that society is keeping us in these boxes, right? And and a white man is the perfect vehicle for, like, representing society. You know, they, they're just, like, these faceless white men. They say, like, this is how we do things, and we run, we run the world, especially probably in 1999. And this the idea that they're rebelling against this white man, I can actually, you know what? I am more powerful than you because I know who I am and I'm free to be who I want to be. I have to believe in myself. And I think that idea of like, I know something's wrong and I know that I could have the key, but it's more than just knowing it. I have to act on it. And acting on it is scary. And when he doesn't run away from Agent Smith at the end of the movie, he confronts Agent Smith. And then only then when he believes in himself and who he is to show that he is the one, does he become the one? And I think that is 
you know, a beautiful idea. Like once you, once you trust what you believe and you make it actionable. And now I, I know there's a million examples of where that also can go wrong. And we talk about cult leaders and things like that. Sure. But there's something really amazing from the metaphor of them, you know, the Wachowskis wrestling with who they want to be, how they want to be perceived in this system, the Hollywood system, which wants them to do kung fu movies that look like, you know, Bruce Lee and Superman and comic books, you know, but they, to feel okay to to be empowered by that. And it took them a little bit of time and they were mocked, you know, uh, as that happened. And, and, you know, you look back on that now and it seems so insane. But I, I remember being like, what, what is this? You know, and, and it's, it's, it was because the way the media kind of portrayed it, like they wanted you to believe that they, that it, it felt flippant or something like that. It wasn't dealt with, with grace or, you know, any sort of humanity. I think they were ridiculed. I mean, weren't they? I mean, they're, they still have continued to be ridiculed for pretty much every movie. Like, has any movie since The Matrix come out by the Wachowskis and people have been like, that was great. Like, everything they do is made fun of because I think there's something in their earnestness and in their, mm-hmm. like, ability to kind of chase their own passionate rabbit holes that people find, like, off-putting, at least on the first watch. Like, oh, you haven't made this film for me. You made this film for yourself. This isn't entertainment for me. This is, like... Your passionate, like hyperactive brain. I'm now I'm saying yours, though they're like one person, but it is interesting. Like people who worked with them would say, like, say, like the editor on The Matrix would say, like, Lily would walk into the room and give a note, and then Lily would leave, and then Lana would walk in a couple minutes later and give the exact same note because they operate in like a symbiotic mind meld. Oh, wow. Um, which is also fascinating. Like, I, I can't really kind of wrap my head around the fact that two different humans can have a mind meld that creates some such singular films as they have. But yeah, like every film they do, like Speed Racer comes out and gets like, oh, that was a disaster. And like Cloud Atlas comes out like, oh, that's almost an embarrassing disaster. But it, I think it's because we're uncomfortable watching art that doesn't feel like, like it wants to hug us and say, I was made for you. Come and eat popcorn with me. Let's go have fun. Like they, they just make stuff that's so weird. And granted, I'm not saying that Cloud Atlas is even a good movie, but like there's something in our reaction to them well, where we you know shame what? their distinctive voice until we come around to it later. We're like, that was lame. Why would you do something so so smeared in your own fingerprints? I think making this movie was really hard for them to get it made, not making it. I'm Yes, making it was complex. And, you know, we talk about bullet time and there's so many other people out there that can do a great uh, discussion of like how amazing Bill Pope was to create this, you know, these gimbals and to do bullet time. And, and again, Wu Ping and all these people, like there's deep dives into every technical aspect of this movie. And I feel like if that's where you want to go, that's a great place to go. But I think there is something about these two people being forced to figure out how they can get their, you know, their Trojan horse into Hollywood. And then when the matrix comes out and is this huge hit, from a script that no one gets, Hollywood then backs off and then goes, well, go make your own thing. And maybe with as bold as their ideas are and the rules that they want and the ideas they want to share, they might be helped by notes or they might be helped to be kind of reined in a little bit because I think that this this is the most pure version. I will say that watching Reloaded, I think that movie is uh, unfairly maligned. It's It's really good. But I think where it's not really good is 
for the people who are just coming back to see action and not necessarily. Uh, and there's amazing action in it. Yeah. But the I mean, movie the multiple goes, Smiths fight is like one of the coolest fights they've had. Yeah. But it goes deeper into the philosophy of the film. And yeah. I think a lot of people walked. I think there's a lot of people who walked out of this movie and just saw cool action, sunglasses and kung fu. And that's why this movie works. And I feel like Speed Racers is visually amazing. And it, like I just think that they, whatever the process was to kind of make their ideas as commercial as possible with their embedded philosophy, it it worked really great here. Because there's a version of this movie that may not have worked if they didn't get or have to jump through so yeah. many hoops. And look, as somebody who hates getting notes and feels like, oh, what do you mean we have to do this and that and this? I think it actually helped this movie become cleaner. It's the way I feel about Dan Aykroyd and Ghostbusters. Like Dan Aykroyd's original script for Ghostbusters was insane and ghosts and all this kind of crazy shit. And the noting process of that was like, let's bring it down to something a little bit more relatable. Let's bring it down into something that we can all identify with. And and I think that those, sometimes with people with giant ideas, it helps to kind of wrestle it into, uh, you know, a Trojan horse, you know, and, and, and be figure out what that, what that middle ground is. Because again, Cloud Atlas is a beloved book, so interesting, but then it just it wasn't executed as well that I think people wanted it to be executed, even though people find a lot to love in it. And I'm not arguing for like more notes to creative people, I do think, though, some of those scenes of exposition really help make this movie more accessible. And because it's more accessible, bring more people in. And I think that makes this movie resonate more because I think you have to spoon feed ideas sometimes. I do think you have to spoon feed, especially big ideas like this. But then what I think is worth exploring about the reaction to this movie then is that however you think that it was spoon fed, people ate the wrong piece of steak. I guess like there's things to read into this movie that I think they weren't trying to spoon fed. And I mean, this movie next to Fight Club coming like in out what the same way? year. Well, I mean, the whole cult of the red pill thing for one, you know, or like when you really start looking into the layers of this movie, one of the things that I find kind of like it horrifies me, but I think it could be interesting if it was more like present or if we talked about it more is the fact that like, yes, all the agents are agents. But all the cops are also just people, human beings plugged into the Matrix who are cops in this version of the world. And when Neo shoots like tons of cops, as he does in that, like, to me, kind of terrifying, almost school shooter dream sequence where he like walks in slow motion past security and then his cool, cool trench coat, like kills tons of policemen, like all the policemen that he kills, like die you know, following the logic of this movie. Like he's just killing lots of actual human beings. Right. And when you kind of take that thought, I mean, what this movie is saying, like, okay, so the police are real. And I guess you could argue, or I could see somebody watching this movie and arguing, well, I guess then they deserve to die because they've got, they've bought into this fiction that they deserve to carry guns and be powerful. Like it, they're, he's aligning with some arguments that I think kind of creep me out a little bit. You know, there's no yeah. real reckoning in here with like all of the policemen who die. No, I well, I think you're right. Like the idea that these people aren't even given a choice. They're just living yeah. their lives and They're are executed as part. And because in a way, what we understand about Neo is he is trying to free these people, right? He is trying to get them to yeah. come out of their cocoons. But yet those people get killed because they're not agents. They're not agents. They are people and that is interesting and I did have a reaction to that scene I didn't think about it like that um 
Yeah, I, I mean, think it's though, weird. Like, like, like that yeah. scene is why when Columbine happened a month later, they were like, oh man, like Matrix trench coats, kids walking around right. shooting tons of people. Like there must be a connection. Although from everything I've ever read, like the Columbine killers never saw the Matrix. They like actually one of them had a plan to go see the Matrix with a friend, but then Columbine and he never actually did it. But like there, it is the things it wants you to align with do also creep me out. You know, like part of what they use in this movie as like an example of slavery is like paying taxes. They're like right. paying taxes. That's subservient. I mean, that's in the clip where they talk about like how Neo lives, you know, two different lives. No, Mr. Anderson. It seems that you've been living two lives. In one life, you're Thomas A. Anderson, program writer for a respectable software company. You have a social security number, you pay your taxes, and you help your landlady carry out her garbage. The other life is lived in computers where you go by the hacker alias Neo and are guilty of virtually every computer crime we have a law for. One of these lives has a future, and one of them does not. But here's what I'll argue on this. And I don't know if we are sophisticated enough to always do this. That's what philosophy is on a certain level, right? We're, we're putting up big ideas. Are those people collateral for a larger win right like that that is a discussion you might have in a philosophy class do we kill eight people to save the world you know the idea of like you press this button on the box state even if you don't know that it's a fascist state are you a fascist look in this world neo doesn't even know he's the one at that moment where he's killing these people right truly he doesn't know yet he doesn't know until that final subway fight scene No, it's true. But then the film really does have this kind of misanthropic streak through it where everybody who disagrees with me or doesn't let me be my freest self is a villain. I mean, the way that they shoot like Neo's boss at the beginning when he's like late to work. And it's that speech that's supposed to be kind of ironic because they're telling him he's not special, but he is special. But there's also a little bit where you imagine you're supposed to watch that scene and be like, yeah, my boss is like a fascist robot. You have a problem with authority, Mr. Anderson. You believe that you are special, that somehow the rules do not apply to you. Obviously, you are mistaken. This company is one of the top software companies in the world because every single employee understands that they are part of a whole. Thus, if an employee has a problem, the company has a problem. I I don't know if you've ever read this book. Uh, It's by Joshua Clover, just called The Matrix, on, like, theories of the Matrix. But Mm -hmm. he points out that like this, you know, kind of dissatisfaction with the man at the time. I mean, yes, it's true. We do call just the enemy, like the man, which is just like Agent Smith and all those men. But he said, you know, there's another movie in 1999 that is basically the Matrix. If instead of taking the red pill, he took the blue pill and was like, I'm just going to go back to my life. And that's office space. That office space is the version of the Matrix where he's like, it's the blue pill. I don't know. My boss is a tool and life sucks. And I have a lot of simmering rage. Well, you know, I guess <laughs> I, I do love that the Matrix and the Office are the yin and yang. The idea that I think we're talking about here is this movie hopefully engages people to ask questions. And I think the hope always is 
if you continue to ask questions and continue to learn, you will evolve and get stronger and better. I think where we're hitting this point of view or this difference is that we've seen this go on now for the last, you know, uh, 21 years. And what we're finding is you can find someone to answer your question the way you want it to be answered. And you stop learning because you just stay in the vacuum, right? And that's, I think that's the problem is like, are we looking to different texts? Are we having these spirited conversations? Or are we just asking questions to continually validate the way that we feel? Like, you know, and that, I think that that's where we've seen a lot of these problems is that there isn't as much of a debate that you might have in a philosophy class. There isn't different points of view unless you really actively seek them out. I think we can all stay in our own bubble. I'm definitely guilty of that and certain things that I believe. I want to continue to make myself ask more questions um, and look outside of myself too and not just immediately shrug it off. But that's a hard thing to do. And I think that the way the internet is built, and rightly so, is it's catering to you, whether it's TikTok, which makes simply an algorithm that gives you exactly what you want, you know, you, you, you know, you are, you are getting your back scratched the right way. I, but then are you questioning, you know, but I think where we're stopping is, and I'm sorry if this is long winded, are we questioning where we're getting that information from? Are we truly questioning that? Or are we just accepting the answer that we want to hear? And I think that's the wrestling that we have to do. And you're right. Any information in anyone's hands is good or bad, depending on how they use it, right? Like, you know, and I think that's the world that we live in. Like media, art, novels, the Bible, all can be used for good or bad. Like it's like like the the Matrix and the Bible both have positives and negatives in society. Well, yeah, I mean, like did the Internet go awry Right after this movie comes out, when it switches from a model where it's like the Internet is designed to connect people to all people and then to a model of like it's all about discovering the self on the Internet. Like the Internet is like the looking glass, you know, in a way to that was find just like, your people. Refer- yeah. Like it's in a way that like we've people, always yeah. kind of talked about. It's weird that technology, the way we the way even products were named is all about flattering the self like you are the chosen one it's your ipod it's your iphone let's go to MySpace. you know right. there is like a you are special among all of these other voices quality to the way the internet was sold in like the 2000s right after this that i do find kind of startling and like against the whole ethic of the internet by like the cyber hackers of like you know the 90s and all the people who were really into cyberpunk where like the internet was a way where people could connect and that maybe when we were on the internet, we would all agree with each other more or like learn more about each other. Well, and, yeah. and I think like the matrix comes out in a point where it isn't decided yet that the internet is going to be as destructive in the way that it, tr- that it proves to be. Well, I mean, you know, I think there is this idea like we have, this is the dessert. This is the steak. This is the issue that we've been talking about. Like we are like steak in this movie is com- is consumerism on some level, right? I, I, I want this thing. It will make me feel happy to eat this steak. It will make me feel happy to live in this house. And what we're doing is we're going deeper and deeper into certain uh, online formats that make us feel good, but we don't feel, we don't see the consumerism in it, right? Like we just see it as, no, 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 this is the right thing. Like 
we are, the internet realized the way to keep people in line is to make the internet more of a consumer-based product. It is about you. You're going to get what you want to see, not what everything is out there. I can sit next to my wife, and I know I'm bringing up TikTok a lot, but, and she is watching something on TikTok that I've never seen. She'll never see my TikToks. Like, and that's really interesting because I'm not in her algorithm. And that is, even though she follows me, Right. And then we were kind of wrestling with this. So this is the deal that we're always dealing with. And I think the Internet is I think that these companies, these tech companies are very smart to create this, but hide it. It doesn't feel like you're buying anything. It just feels like, oh, no, they get me. They get like this. This is good. But it is it is that comfort. It's that familiarity. Yeah. The Internet is showing me who I really am. We've taken away our material possessions to validate are like, you know, like we don't really, people don't really have DVDs anymore and books are, you know, you know, I, I'm not, this is not an absolute, but you know, it's like, well, we read things digitally. We listen to podcasts digitally. Like we don't have things. And the only things that we have our consumerism oftentimes is in, you know, in our phone, in our files, in our, you know, it's like, it's so small NFTs, you know, it's this idea like we don't, we own something that isn't even there. But all that being said, what I think is really interesting about this movie, and I think the staying power of this movie, is that when you first watch it, it's a straight-up action movie, right? And in 1999, when you see it, you've never seen anything like it visually. It, you know, I think from the sound design, like the way that this movie moves you through scenes, the, the sound design here, it's a great listen if you just like listen to all the different background noise, how they bring you in and out and, and let you know that you're changing realities because you're going yeah. through multiple realities. I love the and, sound when like the looking glass metal goes into his throat and you hear his. Oh, his, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's hear that. Lock. I got him. Now, tanks. Now. <laughs> like, it's so well done. And I think as you get further away from it, when I watched it again last night, and I haven't seen The Matrix in a long time. Let's talk about a movie that is like amazingly memeable. It's like I forgot a lot of these connective pieces that actually make the movie a richer experience. I've never not liked The Matrix, but I'm like, oh wait, it's it's more than just like these fights. It's it's more than this. It's but as you get further and further away from 1989, those special effects and those fight scenes aren't that impressive anymore. They are amazing, but we see them. We see them in Black Panther. We see them in, you know, the new Avengers. Like, yeah, so they were making fun of them by the time Shrek came out, like right afterwards. Right. Do you remember that scene where like Fiona's fighting a bunch of like oh, yeah. Robin's yeah. merry men and they're like, oh, she's in the Matrix now. <laughs> can I can I say something, though, that like really yeah. struck me? I think. You know, I think there's something really deep in the idea of bullet time, though, beyond being like a cool effect. I would like to imagine that like what bullet time means is it's a moment where like time stops and you become like hyper aware and you become conscious, like fully conscious and you can see everything around you. There's something about bullet time to me that that speaks to something philosophical, like the moment of being like absolutely present in your life. It feels like I, some sort yes. of Zen meditation awakening. And I love well, that that is there beyond just being a cool party trick. I feel so silly to admit this, but fuck it. I don't care. I'll be open um, in therapy. And I haven't seen The Matrix in a long time. I was describing something that I understood about myself and the way I look at certain things now. And I described it as bullet time. Like I can certainly see now 
things coming in from people in my life that are triggers for me or things that I'm, I, I am able to capture it. So like where I think I've improved myself is instead of, uh, getting shot with those bullets, I'm like, Oh, there's that thing. I got to be aware of it. And I'm just, because I've done work on myself, I feel like I'm able to avoid certain traps of my own making, you know, with certain people. And, and that it was so interesting that that's the way I described it. And I haven't seen this movie probably in a decade, honestly. I haven't, you know, it's not like a movie I revisit all the time. But in theory, I, you know, it was that idea still stayed with me. And I, and I think about it like that when I'm in a moment, you know, with a family member or, you know, or a situation that I know triggers me, I can now catch it. I'm like, oh, I know this moment and I'm going to avoid it. And that, and it's, to me, it's the only way I can kind of, talk about understanding myself because it's 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 reactive in a different way it's it's being kind of in the moment present understanding myself enough to be able to avoid my own issues if that makes sense i i love that i love so, that image yeah. i mean i love that they were able to popularize a look that feels so resonant in, in the way that you describe. I mean, and yeah, like, sure, like Michelle Gondry kind of invented it, but like they, they were able to kind of give us a whole new way of seeing the world, honestly. It, it's like crazy to imagine that they couldn't really even explain what bullet time was for people who hadn't happened to see like the vodka commercial that Michelle Gondry did. Like they would try to demonstrate it to studio executives by like... Wait, I didn't even know about this vodka commercial. Oh yeah, Michelle Gondry did like a, a vodka commercial that uses bullet time like a few years ahead of this because... Michelle Gondry, amazing visual yeah. stylist. Um, but yeah, like the Wachowskis would go in to try to like demonstrate what bullet time was. And Lana would like throw herself back like she was going to freeze the way that Keanu did. And then Lily just always had to be ready to catch her because she wow. was going to fall. But they kept demonstrating it over and over again to try to explain it. And now, yeah, I think you could criticize it for becoming like a mental meme and for being in like a Shrek movie and for being like ridiculed and being in scary movie. But hearing you describe it like that, bullet time seems suddenly so beautiful. Well, it's that moment, and I, I and I felt that emotional connection to it of when he freezes all the bullets, when Neo freezes all the bullets, and he's able to knock them out, like not even avoid it. It's like, nope, I'm not dealing with these things. That's dropping. It's like I'm protecting myself. I'm. I I love this. I love that about this movie is that you can you can keep on finding things in it. Or there are images that help you understand what you're going through. Because what you really, what this movie is about is self-actualization. At the base level, it's self-actualization. All the bells and whistles are amazing, but that's what this movie is about. And that's a very interesting way that we can experience that in so many different ways. Um, and not just, you know, you could be self-actualized as a person, but maybe not in your career or, you know, in other different ways. And I think also what this movie does, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it sets the template for every Marvel superhero action movie that is to come because this movie is also, this is the origin story movie. Like, and I know we've had movies before this, like Superman and things like that, but this movie truly, when you watch this movie, you're like, oh, this is every Marvel, this is every first Marvel movie. Like, you know, this or of a, of a major character, right? Where, 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 you know, and like, you get discovered by somebody else. You learn a special power. You got your training sequence. And again, 
I'm sure there are examples where this happened before, but I think that when I was watching this, I could see, especially in like the early Marvel films, like people saying, well, you know, how do we make it a little bit more like the Matrix? How do we get into this thing? How do we, you know, because what Keanu Reeves is, is a normal guy. He's not Schwarzenegger. He's not, not the buff action star. And it's about taking these normal people through this journey where they actually realize that they are super powerful. And that's what Marvel does in spades. Um, you know, Superman's different because Superman comes from a different planet. He doesn't have to like, he has the powers. He doesn't, he doesn't have to like learn them. I think Superman two is interesting because he's like losing the powers and that's like a reverse origin story. But, uh, but there is something about the Spider-Man, all this, all these stories about this normal person. Like, I mean, uh, I don't know. I just, I felt, I saw so much Marvel in this. Well, I think it prepares people to see superhero stories as not just being for kids. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like, okay. So like Carrie Fisher wears like head to toe PVC, right? Which is kind of a goofy look, but she wears it with such style that she makes it seem like a grown-up choice. You could also say that this movie launches the next wave of like big, big indie people turning blockbuster. I mean, think about like Carrie Ann Moss. Like she's a nobody Canadian actress when she does this movie. They wanted Janet Jackson actually for this character. Wow. Originally, which I I love that idea too. Yeah, Janet Jackson turned it down because she was like so busy with her tour and then she kind of regretted it. And then when her new album Discipline came out, she actually took Matrix ideas and put it into the introduction because she was like, oh man, I could have been like the face of this cyber world. Kyoko, it's me. Confirmed. Hello, Miss Janet. Loading all signals. You are now signed in. Thank you. Loading media player. Select album. Discipline. Confirmed. Discipline. But to the Carrie Ann Moss of it all, like who watches this movie and thinks, wow, she's amazing? I mean, it's Christopher Nolan. He watches this movie. He's like, holy shit, that Carrie Ann Moss is amazing. She has to be in Memento. And that's like his big breakout film. And then because of that, you and June get to go see Interstellar on a date and have like a weird, weird night together, (laughs) you know? But that is like the Carrie Ann Moss I think effect. I think there was like a, a rippling effect from her because she's so great in this movie. And I think it launches it launches more stuff like that. By the way, don't you think it's striking that like she and Keanu are groomed to look a lot alike in this movie? Mm-hmm. Like there's parts when they're making out in the second movie, especially, where it's like he's making out with his own kind of reflection in a movie that's all about like the mirrored version of yourself. Well, it's interesting, even in that sex scene in the second film, which is really interesting, and it's a scene that's gotten really ripped apart, the rave, you know, scene. Um, The way that their bodies are intertwined, it's very androgynous. You know, it's like you're, you're seeing, it's focusing on different parts of their bodies that don't say, like, this is a man or a woman or, you know, the way that we think of it. And I think that that's really interesting. I actually... In watching that scene last night, I was like, why are we, why do we hate this scene so much, this rave scene? I think it articulates something about the the theory of this movie, which is, you said earlier, it's robots versus kung fu. That rave scene, I think in many ways, is the only way to articulate what we are as humans. Like, yes, to that- dance and have sex. And like, we are like, this is our expression. Like, how else can you show the most primal nature of us. Thank you. you. That is exactly why I like that scene too, is because it's that scene in the second matrix where you understand why any of this is even worth fighting for. Like the truth is like Keanu in the first movie, 
he's waking up from being like a computer program delusion and he's still kind of shaking himself up. Like he's not, I would not say that he comes across as like fully human. Like the most human thing I think he does is like when he's running around and he's got the earpiece and he's trying to like find Morpheus and he can't tell left from right. Go on your left. No, your other left. As a person who has never gotten left from right, right in my entire life, I deeply same. identify with that scene. But that's like kind of his most flawed, I guess. That's the most personality I think he has in that in in the entire first Matrix. That and like kind of the look on his face when he's like, "Oh, I can fight this guy one handed." Okay, but yeah, it's that second, it's that second movie and like the love scene and the orgy. We are like, yes, humanity is worth defending. Because the humanity that we see in like the first Matrix movie is like the right to eat wheat and not pay taxes. Oh, I get to eat mush, but I don't have to pay taxes. So I guess this is great. It doesn't seem that cool. I mean, but what we're what we're celebrating is that is a world without consumerism, right? That is a world that is based on, you know, love and community. And it's something so pure about that. And I think I challenge anyone to figure out a way to show that what they needed to show there. Like this idea, like we are human. That's what we have. The only thing that we have is like these, you know, robots can't dance, right? Like that idea, like there's some, I don't know if that, I said it like that's a phrase. Uh, is it? Maybe. Uh, but I think they can. I think they've taught them. Well, but not well. Um, well, maybe better than me. <laughs> but there is something about that that is so, I think maybe coming out of COVID and looking at that, brought it to light to me in a way too. It's like, that's what we all long to do, right? We all have like been a bunch longing. Of people's faces in a sweaty cave. Well, I just mean, like kinda, get back, get kinda. back into, yeah, get back into the world and be with people. And, and we've been trapped in our houses and our pods. And, and I know that like, I've heard about these dance parties that people have been having and wanting to just like, I want to hug again. I want to like, I want to, I just want to like be yeah. touched if you're alone, if you're this, like, and there is that, that's the most basic human need. Right. And it's, um, there I mean, is something really life affirming. Beautiful. Yeah. Like I have my cold yeah. because my boyfriend went to a mosh pit last week. He got Amazing. a cold. Then I got a cold and our cold comes from like a really sweaty, grindy, grindy mosh pit. And you know mm -hmm. what? In a way that maybe I'm grateful I have my cold because it means I'm connected to humanity and all of its germs because Yes, humans are the virus. I'll also say that the what I love about this movie and what I think is really interesting is it very rarely do have a movie that so many people can agree on about it being a text for their own beliefs, right? Um, at the same time, it works fully functional as a big budget Hollywood movie. It sets the tone for the future. You know, this is right at the beginning of the 2000s. So everything that comes after it is definitely influenced it by this film, whether it's like in the direct references like of the bullet time, but also in doing fight scenes that look more interesting. You know, like the launch of John Wick, which won't come until 14 years later. But this idea that we are, this movie is in many ways, the red pill. Like it opens up our minds for better or for worse. We go in to society and now here we are in 2021, you know, 22 years later, watching a sequel of this movie that still resonates in our culture that is 
you know, we'll see what it's going to, what it will be. Um, but if it's anything to what we've seen in even the two uh, follow-ups to the film, it's not, it's not going to be an action movie. It's going to be, we know it's going to be a commentary on what we will see. But it will be, it will be commenting. It will be, I think, a new point of view. Where, what is the world that we live in now? What is, you know, and this is maybe the best answer to this debate that we're having here. Like, what is the effect of the Matrix? Can they answer that in this new movie? Yeah, I mean, I I cannot wait to see it because I feel like what makes this movie resonant to me is knowing everything that will come to pass about humanity and mm-hmm. the internet. I think if I had seen it when you saw it in 1999, I'd be like, cool, it's a really big the net with amazing fighting scenes. But now it just feels so much more dimensional to me in every way, like for good, for good and for bad. I mean, you made a reference to a documentary that came out you know, this year. It's called Glitch in the Matrix by Rodney Asher about like the idea, are we living in a simulation? Are we living in a matrix? It's about that kind of, but what it's really about is about interviewing people who do believe we live in a, in a simulation to try to, I guess, to use a documentary as a way of trying to understand them, to try to connect, to try to be like, what is happening in a person's life where they would believe that we live in a simulation? It's a really terrific documentary. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, but there it's are amazing. parts of it that are like chilling. I mean, there's the part where like, Rodney talks to a person named Joshua Cook who loved The Matrix, watched The Matrix on repeat, and then had kind of a snap where he thought he was living in a simulation and killed his family. I mean, steal yourself. I'm going to play a short clip of it because it, it, it is chilling. And it starts with him getting on the phone the night that he killed his family and saying the very last speech from The Matrix movie. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. A world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. And I hung up the phone, and I walked calmly back to the TV in my room and began watching The Matrix all over again. And I remember sitting there um, on my bed looking up at The Matrix poster, just saying basically, fuck my life. Um, and, and I want to be really clear. I'm not blaming The Matrix for this. I'm not saying like, if it, you know, The Matrix is like driving people crazy or making people insane. I, I feel like, if anything, the fact that Toy Story was talking about similar ideas in a way, like proves that we've always wondered about this or worried about this. But it... The Matrix gave us a new way of talking about it, which I think is like valuable and scary. It's powerful and terrifying. It's it's a lot of things all at once. And I can see an argument to just go to the office space world of it and have the blue pill and eat steak, to be honest, because the Internet terrifies me. Well, I also see the idea that we are always longing to get out of our life to find the other thing. And that, you know, Ben Affleck was on Howard Stern this week. And it a weirdly controversial interview, and I don't understand why, because if you listen to the full two hours of it, it's actually very insightful. It's very interesting. Uh, they pulled a couple of clips that are very clickbaity. But if you listen to him talk about this business, that's a long way to get to this one point of the story, but he said that he had an experience. He's like, I, I sat down with probably one of the most famous 
actors you could possibly ever meet. Um, and when I sat down with him, that actor said to me, you know, you met me before and you didn't recognize me. You didn't recognize me. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, yeah, you, you just, you didn't even, you didn't even know who I was. And, and he's like, first of all, I did know who you were. And I have a picture of that night with me and you on my wall because it was so seminal to me to meet you. And he said in that moment, what he realized was here's someone who has achieved so much and has really just like is at the height of their profession and still feeling as if they have not achieved anything. And there is maybe a green like there. They have not gotten their their goods like LeBron James, your Laker, uh, your Laker favorite, uh, you know, when he wins the uh, the West Coast finals in the bubble or whatever, says, like, put some respect on my name. It's like, you're LeBron James. Like, you are synonymous with basketball. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, you've won all these titles. You are amazing. But there's this idea of, like, there's something better out there. I'm not getting what I deserve. I People don't know me. Like, we are constantly in this battle. And this is kind of this this circle that we're talking about, this destructive circle of, we are not, we need to get something else. There's something else out there. And in that attempt to get something else, we kind of destroy the thing that we have because we're struggling. We're not even enjoying it the moment anymore. And I think this is a, that's more universal than anything. And it's sort of like, and I think we always think that there's something beyond what we're actually experiencing. And if we can get to that moment where we are just being present, like the rave, not, you know, and it's not going to be perfect, but I think this movie is about balance. Like, yes, there might be something more out there, but we why are we going out there? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to better ourselves or are we trying to just change our reality? And I think that that's kind of what is happening in the movie. Like, Neo is makes a choice to better himself and maybe Cypher makes a choice to, like, better his reality. And those are two very different things, but they feel the same. It's like, you know what? I'm tired of this. Give me the steak. Make me an actor. The other one's like, this is hard. This is rough, but I know this is right. Well, then what would you do if you saw Lawrence Fishburne on the street? He reached into his pocket and he offered you this. But people dove so deep on the Matrix movies that if someone thought that you were Morpheus, you could probably have some fun with it. You could be like, not now. I'm in the matrix. <laughs> I'm there, you know. It's, it's what's sad is that that's what people do to me. Really? Yeah, people are like, oh, I'm in the matrix now. Yeah. Like, no, no. So what's no, sad no. is that people... We're at 7-Eleven right now. <laughs> right, right. We're in the line and we're at 7-Eleven <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. now, man. I like it you said... It might be worth your while to keep a red and blue pill you know, in your pocket. for a while, I toyed <laughs> yeah. with the idea of carrying red and blue yeah, M&Ms yeah, yeah, just yeah. to get ah, people to shut yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there just you to blow That's their mind. That's a great idea. Make them you know what? And here, here's what I'll say. I would say no. I would take, I would take the blue pill. I would stay in the matrix because of my family. Yeah, because would you wake them up? Would they even be your family? Would no, they be it family? would. It, no, I mean it would be. It, it wouldn't like, be your family. And there's something about that. Maybe that's selfish, and that's a selfish choice. I've just made that choice right here. It's not heroic, but that like, and I think that there's a line in the movie. I know there's a line in the movie where Lawrence Fishburne says, "We we don't wake people up after like 11 years old or something like that. Their brains are too committed to this world." But it's also, I think. You, what are you leaving behind? I'm not leaving behind like, oh, I want 
my, uh, you know, my sure microphone, I'm saying I, I, I want this relationship because I'd be giving away all of that. It's not like I'm going to see them on the other side. It's like that would be forever gone. And my decision is I'd rather be with the people that I love, even though it's fake. But that's a decision, not a materialistic decision. It's a it is based in a love decision. Now I'm getting emotional thinking about that huh. choice. But what about you? Would you t- would you take it? What would you do? You know, I think I'd take the blue pill, too. And that makes me feel very lame. I, I'm definitely not the chosen one. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's a part of me that really is okay living in a world of like delusion and pretending that everything is fine, to be honest. Right. And I'm always rebelling against that. I'm not proud of that part of my personality. And yet, if I'm going to be really honest about my, my weaknesses and my frailties, like, yeah, you mean I can live in a reality and like have an ice cream cone and not live on wheat and not live in this like H.R. Geiger spaceship and not know that the world is so terrifying. Like it, it's scary to admit that the world is terrifying. I feel like the last like six years have all been about recognizing more and more that the world is like a much scarier place than I thought it was when I was like a suburban kid. And I wouldn't undo learning about it, but I'm I'm weak and I'm not a hero. And maybe I would rather just Eat the steak. Uh, that sounds so wow. unheroic, but I, I'll never do a cool backbend. Oh, well. No, I don't know. It's a, it, it's a tough choice to make, I think. And the good news about this movie is it it shows people wrestling with it. But this movie, what it doesn't do is, like, what does Thomas Anderson have? Nothing. It's an easier choice for him to make. That's true. He has no loved ones. He has a job that he hates. His apartment is like a box. And he, does and he like lives online at the time, which in 1999 to be online as much as he is, it means you're kind of lame, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I am, I am curious about what that, what that is, you know, what is that world? Um, yeah. He's not attached to anybody or anything. There's no family. I mean, at least even Dorothy wanted to go back to see Aunt, Aunt M. Right. There's none of that here. I mean, I think that that's another interesting debate. Like how do you leave, you know, someone who actually has a life? Yeah. Maybe that's the premise. Maybe that's the premise of the new movie. I don't know. Like, like, can we develop? I mean, I doubt it's about Keanu living in a in a, yeah. a Tudor house in uh, you know. But yeah, but you're I, right. I, I mean, this I, film you know. does not allow itself to make any sort of an argument that the Matrix world is maybe okay. You know, it, it's well, just like this is a terrible place that you want to leave where your boss is mean to you. And, I will also say this: it, like taking the red pill it can be done without going into the world of the matrix, right? We know that. And that's, I think that that's the different thing. Like we're talking about literally going into the world of the, of the, of Zion and that, but like, I think you could take the red pill in your life. And then I would take the red pill in my life to make certain choices because, but I also think that taking the red pill is incredibly narcissistic as well. You're saying, I believe so much in myself that I'm willing to, you're betting on yourself. I mean, that's that's what taking the red pill is. And I think, I know I definitely do that in my life, but it's also not at the, ex- you know, it's like what Sondheim said. We talked about this too. Like Sondheim said, like in many ways, he took the red pill of creativity. Like I, all the relationships that I neglected was, was because I was creating art. And at some point, like that was his choice that he made. 
And taking the red pill doesn't mean we have to upend society. I guess and that maybe is, maybe that's the difference. It's like, how do you be proactive with, because what you're rebelling against, I think, is the one. And I think that the way people have taken this red pill thing is like, I am the one instead of I am finding a way to get better. It's like, it's like, it's not enough just to be enlightened, to find a new way of doing things. It's like, not only am I going to do that, I am the person that is going to expose it for everyone. And that probably is the biggest problem. Well, then. Perhaps you would like to know what film critics decided to take the red pill yes. and love this movie. And what critics were like, eh, I'm good with my popcorn. I'm good with my blue pill. Goodbye. I don't need this movie. The response to The Matrix was actually fairly good. It was, it was, I would say, upper mixed. You know, people being like, oh, it's a big, big, big spectacle. Keanu Reeves had almost no respect from critics at the time. Um, but yet finding things to love about it, finding things they didn't like the reviews of this were more mixed than almost any review I've ever seen. Where like, even the ones that loved it had a lot of quibbles, even the ones that quibbles had things that they loved. A lot of times when you look at the reviews of the movies that we've covered on this, it's like massive raves or massive disses. This one, everybody, I guess, had a foot in both worlds. But the review that I decided to read is from Andrew O'Hare of Salon. And this is what he said. He called the Matrix, quote, a loud and empty spectacle, 1999's apex of dazzling technological style over substance. It lacks anything like adult emotion, and its themes and images arrive at a dizzying, stupefying pace as if vomited up by some voracious creature that ate the last 20 years of sci-fi and action movie history and only partially digested them. If you've never seen a John Woo film or any of the Alien movies or Blade Runner or either of the Terminators, if you believe the Borg was a medieval castle and City of Lost Children was one of the more obscure Italian neo-realist films, then you can do all of your pop culture homework in one fell swoop. The Matrix is all of those films, as well as a video game, a primer on Zen Buddhism, a parable of the second coming. It may bore you to death or blow your mind, and it is long and convoluted enough to do both, but... It holds nothing back. And then he says, you know, there's no point defending The Matrix on intellectual grounds. It's too big, too noisy, not nearly as original as all of the movies that it so successfully absorbs and emulates. If you're the kind of person who feels tired after five minutes of MTV, do not even consider it. But he does say he does say that while the Wachowskis have little feeling for character or human interaction, their passion for movies, for making them, watching them, inhabiting their world is pure and deep. You know, this is actually one thing that you and the Wachowskis have in common. You saw every movie of that you ever wanted to, and that's exactly what they did growing up. They would take the newspaper out, they would circle every movie that was out in theaters, and then they would figure out a way to go see them together. So you're a little you're 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 another Wachowski. I'm a baby Wachowski. I love it. Uh, well, Amy, I think the choice is simple. If we're talking about a movie that's going to go into outer space, I I don't think that there is even that much debate on this one, right? I mean. Yes, absolutely. Really? Um, I'm really? Not, I'm not entirely convinced. I want to give it a little more time. You know what I think is holding me back is still just the residue on this movie and how much it terrifies me. What if we've ruined the aliens' lives by making them watch The Matrix? It's weird. I don't think that this movie is quite as bright as it thinks it is. I think it's very, very smart. I don't think it's like, whoa, like synecdoche New York level, like mind-blowingness. It, a movie that I think like, plays with alternate realities and, and also makes me cry. But I think that it, I think that this movie is like a really powerful worm, I guess, like a worm that gets inside of your body and kind of like chews away and eats. And like, it, it does, it does, it shapes and it changes you. And 
I, I don't know. For better or worse, it's me, Blue Pill Coward. I'm not entirely sure I want to put it up into space forever. 22 years later, this movie still has resonance. 22 years later, this movie has simply affected film in so many ways. If we're talking about movies like Titanic and saying, let's put that on the list, I don't I don't I don't see how the Matrix doesn't go on there. This is not like, oh wow, like it was some cool visuals. Like there are so many things here that from technical to creative to uh to what we this this conversation that we just had, I I I think this is if we were to make an order of our list, this would be in the top echelon of films only in the sense of it's it's scope it's got almost everything like where i think you know and i i'm not hate to draw right to titanic because i know that that's a soft spot for you but i will say that like where titanic is a beautiful uh you know technological achievement the story is very base and that's fine it's a very base love story well acted but when you layer them together, it it does kind of clarify for me that I am just such a humanist. I like movies with actual emotions about human beings, and that's not really in this one. Oh my gosh, I totally disagree with you. I think the love story between Neo and 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 Trinity is something that's really we talk about like this unrequited love, and I think it comes in that that kiss at the end and this moment and this that they share this moment with each other. I, I feel like it's different, um, and it's not. It's it. I think it continues to grow, but I think it is like I think this is at the heart of it. It is a love story. It's a story about passion. It's a story about ideas. Like Morpheus is so passionate about his ideas that he's willing to sacrifice his own life for someone else. It's very Romeo and Juliet. It's the same way that Jack sacrifices you know himself for Rose. Like that's how much he loves Neo. How much he believes in this. Um, so in my mind. It's not necessarily traditional, like, I'm in love and we're this, da, 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 da. But it, it is about different types of love. We talked about that last week on, on Love Actually. Why aren't we seeing different types of love? And I think here we're, we're seeing it in spades. But that's my opinion. I open it up to everybody out there. I know where you stand and we'll continue to debate it. Uh, but discord.gg slash Paul Shear, the Unspooled Forum there, our Facebook forum. And a reminder that everybody should head on over to our Unspooled store on tpublic.com where we have these amazing uh, holiday deals and some new shirts up in the store there. Um, but Amy, as we kind of wrap up our uh, our stocking stuff for month, do we want to tell people what's in store for the uh, the week after Christmas? Well, you know what? Maybe I'm not ready to leap into the future of 2022 because I kind of want to do one more Christmas movie. Can we do another Christmas movie? Let's do it. We're all enjoying it. We're back. We're watching things. I'm excited. What's What Christmas movie do we have on the docket? I think we need to do a Christmas story. I am very happy that you said it because it's a movie that people have asked us to do uh, a lot. And I'm surprised. It like it was a movie that I felt like I, you know, it resonates with so many people. And I just recently saw the film 8-Bit because my wife is in it. And um, I, I thought some similarities there. So maybe we can have a conversation uh, about this new movie and this old movie and put them all together. But take a listen to the Christmas story uh, trailer right here. In this modern age, perfect. too many people have lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas. Mom! Hush! Shut up, Ralphie! So now, in the spirit of the original... I made you! Stop! Tradition. American Christmas. Thanks a lot! MGM presents 
A Christmas Story. Santa's beard. And unwraps the secrets. Did they get a tie this year? Of the original, traditional. He looks like a deranged Easter bunny. 100% two fisted, red blooded. It's smiling at me. All American Christmas. A Christmas story. And you can get Christmas Story wherever you stream your films. But, Amy, this is a great conversation. I cannot wait to have our Matrix uh, Resurrections uh, conversation on Twitch. Uh, Stay tuned on social media to find out about that. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank you.